person deliver that news and in person to deliver gifts we read about that in chapter 4 verse 18 I have received full payment and even more I'm amply supplied now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent there might have been money but it might have been a scarf it might have been just the things which they felt Paul was probably going to need in his situation in Rome and you can imagine this man making this long journey with those gifts and when he had arrived he obviously spends a significant amount of time with Paul and I'm sure that they would have spent many hours talking together about the people that they mutually knew and about the state of the church in Philippi and this letter that we have in the Bible of Philippians is like a return letter from Paul to the Philippian church where he's saying to them thank you so much thank you so much for sending Epaphroditus thank you for those lovely gifts they were just what I needed it was such a timely thing that you did for me and uh, thank you for all those stories that have come back to me now and so we have this blessing of a return letter. Paul has much more to say to them. And uh, you just see how the, the little seed of good things, which was put into the heart of the Philippian church, that they said to this man, Epaphroditus, do you know what? We want to spare you for this. We want you to undertake this ministry. Traveling four and a half thousand miles at that period of time would not have been an easy thing to do, would it? It would be quite a dangerous thing to do. But he did it. And he went and uh, the church spared him for such ministry. Isn't it good when people are um, able to uh, come and tell us personally about situations? I remember when Mano came over from uh, Sri Lanka and he was able to tell us things about the Sri Lankan situation that you could not possibly really grasp just from a letter. Just being able to, to have the person there and to see the body language in a way and to, to sense his heart uh, and to ask further questions and I think that was the lovely blessing that Paul enjoyed as he got to know the Philippian church afresh through um, Epaphroditus because he did have personal history Paul had had a remarkable experience 10 years before which we read about in the book of Acts. So you can see on the screen uh, to the right-hand side is the land of Turkey. Uh, by the way, that's where Victor and Udit are living at this time. So Paul and his companions, Silas and Luke, uh, they find themselves completely constrained. That They feel that God has been calling them to minister in this area here or maybe up there but they're constrained they, they keep on being pushed westward 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 and they get to Troas here which is a port and uh, at this particular point Paul has the vision of the man of Macedonia Macedonia up here and say come and help us come over and help us and, and they conclude that the Holy Spirit is in this and they make that journey they go to the port of Neapolis here and then onwards inland to, to Philippi. And uh, what, a, what an incredible experience that was. You know, I, I think as we read that, 
passage again this morning just to, to sense how that they just went forward not knowing quite what God had in mind for them there um, and they see God's remarkable work uh, firstly we're told about Lydia and how the Lord opened her heart and then uh, it appears her whole household uh, and then the, the things turn very ugly uh, in a spiritual way they're, they're arrested they're flogged thrown into prison the inner cell um, and then that extraordinary experience at midnight as they're singing to the Lord and uh, an earthquake occurs and the jailer and his uh, whole family um, are brought to a place of utter need what must I do to be saved um, Paul experienced those things and they were absolutely seared upon his, his heart memory weren't they just as it would be for any of us who had the, the privilege of being involved in something like that. <coughs> and um, so we come to this letter, and it's a, it's a singing letter. It's a singing letter. One commentator has said, Paul's experience in Philippi was singing in the prison cell at midnight. And as he writes this letter, he's singing. He's still singing, even though he's in a difficult situation. He's probably under house arrest in Rome at this time but it's a letter which is full of the word joy did you notice that as we read chapter 1 together the word joy just keeps on occurring and uh, later on in the letter the word rejoice rejoice I say it to you again rejoice a singing letter and we read of that joy which seems to flood his prayers so that uh, in chapter 1 and verse 4 he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. It's interesting just to pause at that point and think, oh, that's a very interesting aspect of prayer. That our prayer for people should be filled with joy. That as we remember them, it appears that Paul did so with, with a deep sense of, of joy. And that joy was rekindled every time he had joyful partnering for them because the Philippian people were such a faithful bunch toward him. Later on in the letter, he says in chapter 4, As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. They weren't a strong church, but they always wanted to do what they could for this apostle who had planted the gospel in their midst. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in need. great they were very consistent in their giving towards Paul and here 10 years on they're still giving towards him they're still thinking about him it reminded me of the giving that we make as a church to uh, mission causes uh, and many of those giving situations go back at, at least 10 years or so and it's a very healthy thing that we should give in that consistent manner so that those who receive that gift uh, 
should know that we're partnering with them in the gospel. That's what our giving is about. We're partnering in the gospel in some way. We don't want the gospel to be hindered, restricted by lack of finance. What a joyful thing it was to hear from Victor and Judith when they received our money and they said, do you know, that just covers our rent for 2019 in Turkey. I thought, oh, what a blessing. You know, that's just a relief for them. They brought that before the Lord in their prayers um, and we were able to do what we were able to do um, in joyful partnering. And um, we remember them with joy. They receive our, our gift. They remember us with joy. And this is how the, the Christian life works, how fellowship works um, amongst us. And so when Paul prays for them, he prays with this exuberant joy. But it's not an unrealistic um, praying. It's not as if he has uh, uh, inappropriate expectations about the Philippian people. He knows very well the many situations of difficulty and trouble that they are, have faced and will definitely face. So I've listed five there that are found here in this letter. Chapter 1, verse 29 and 30. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Very soon after the gospel came to Philippi, there was persecution. There was spiritual conflict going on, hence the prison. They didn't call that upon themselves. It was just something that happened as an outflow of the gospel. And it appears that the Philippians were likely, the Philippian Christians were likely to carry on suffering, suffering in this way and such persecution. And We, we may well have to suffer such things ourselves. So how, how would you feel if two Brighton policemen came to your door on Tuesday evening of this week with a piece of paper and said to you, I want you to f- sign this, please. And the piece of paper says this. Originally, you did not really understand Christianity, but now you have a more comprehensive understanding of religious belief and your own spiritual need. You have decided from today no longer to attend Christian activities and no longer to believe in Christianity. So that's Tuesday evening, and they come on your door, and they say, you need to sign this. Otherwise, there are going to be severe consequences. So that's what's happening in a province in China now. Right now. Christian believers are facing exactly that sort of statement that they're being forced to sign. Otherwise they will go to prison. This is the suffering and persecution that God's people face in every generation. And there's worldliness. 
And this is a worldliness that seems to be lapping at the doors of the church. Chapter 3, verse 18. As I have often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. And their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. And I think he's having to warn them because this is a very near temptation, a very near problem to them. It's interesting he says here, I've told you before, often, and now say again, even with tears. Even with tears. Saying, this is a real risk that you face. inside the church that you should find your love for the Lord Jesus growing cold and being supplanted by selfishness and things that have to do with this life only Paul also has something to say about quarrelling so he introduces this in chapter 2 verse 2 And he says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And this isn't just a formula, but it's in the context of a reality, which is found in chapter 4, verse 2, where he pleads with the Odia, and I plead with Sidtike, to agree with each other in the Lord. It's a bold thing to put in a letter, isn't it, in that way? to identify these two people and say look there's been a falling out here it's very very important that you get this sorted to agree with each other in the Lord so one of the Christmas letters we received was from a couple who have experienced a bad church split in the last year there was no hint of it in in previous communications but this year something happened and um, they didn't go into the detail of it but behind most church splits and difficulties somewhere or other lies personality maybe Aeodia and Syntyche two Christian people who are falling out and cannot find a way to have a restored relationship do not know how to be forgiving towards each other and Paul says be so careful of this issue of quarrelling he would know he would know that this quarrelling could lead to the split of the church in Philippi And then we come on to the question of anxiety, which looks like a soft target. Anxiety. Chapter 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. Anxiousness seems such an innocuous issue almost, but it can become a cancer that robs a Christian of all his or her peace and joy. 
dear brothers and sisters if you're suffering from this anxiousness it's become your habit to be anxious please receive the word of Philippians 4 verse 6 do not be anxious but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving make your request to God to leave it in God's hands or you will find that your peace and your joy has drained away or there can be changed circumstances chapter 4 verse 12 Paul says this I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well fed or hungry whether living in plenty or in want I've learned the secret it was something he had to work out something he had to develop in his understanding something he may have tripped up on in the past but he said well I've now learned the secret of what it is to be content in every situation Changed circumstances can be times of spiritual opportunity but can also be dangerous times when we become disoriented and out of routine or confused. Do you remember in the book of Job? Job was a very wealthy man and he had everything. He had an abundant family, many, many flocks, well respected and so on. And Satan comes to God and says... Does Job fear God for nothing? In other words, I don't think his relationship with God is based upon sincerity and truth, but it is more based upon the fact that he has all these good things. Let's see what happens if those good things are taken away. Well, we know what happens because the whole book unfolds that in the end and we see the integrity that was found in Job at the end. But it's a fair question, isn't it? It's a fair question for any one of us. If we are found suddenly in a different situation, well, where is our trust? Where is our confidence? Or are we going to be really disoriented A changed job, becoming a parent, being bereaved, sickness. Reading the story of George Whitfield in the last few days, George Whitfield was a, a most gifted and blessed evangelist. He's 25 years old and for the last three or four years he has had remarkable success in his ministry. Tens of thousands of people come to hear him every time he stands up to speak the gospel. And he speaks the gospel four or five times every day. God blesses him, not just in his ability to do that, not just in his ability, as, as it appears, to draw these vast crowds of people 
remember this is 18th century England with the population as it was at that time but the fact that there are significant numbers of people who are being converted by the Holy Spirit of God under that ministry when he leaves the pulpit places and of course the churches are not big enough to hold the crowds that want to hear so he's out in the fields and the crowds keep following him and he has no time to himself at all everybody's wanting to talk with him everybody's wanting to share their soul situation with him how can I be saved what must I do to be saved like the Philippine jailer they're saying and this goes on day after day after day and the Lord gives him strength so after this fantastic ministry he goes to America and he's on board a sailing boat for 11 weeks with just the crew and eight people eight other people who are making the same journey the crowds have gone and in this sudden moment of absolute difference he is so convicted about his own sinfulness his own pride to such an extent that he feels that he doesn't want to preach the gospel again because he's completely unworthy to do it it was a kind of shattering experience but a very very helpful experience for him as he was put in a different situation and was forced to look at himself in a way that his previous life hadn't allowed him change circumstances can be an opportunity but they can also be a threat and Paul is not unrealistic about these Philippian Christians he doesn't put them on a pedestal he knows the troubles that they're facing the difficulties that they face yet he prays with absolute joy concerning them Paul is genuinely joyful and this verse tells us why being confident of this that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus this is one of those verses that's very good to learn by heart (laughs) to take encouragement from his joy is built on confidence and his confidence is built on the work of God the word here is very strong it's an absolute conviction you can depend on this he refuses to let the tone of his prayers be dictated by weakness and sinfulness doubt and temptation even failure and falling and we can see plenty of that in ourselves and others but he will always have the tone of his prayers set by the reality of the mighty, inflexible, unchangeable and overwhelming purpose and power of God. I don't want to draw four things from this particular verse. He who began a good work in you. Paul is of course referring to God but he leaves it rather open as to whether he's ascribing this to God the Father or another person of the Trinity 
perhaps this is helpful for us. For it reminds us that God's beginning work in a person can be rightly identified with God the Father, with God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There would be no beginning work in us if God the Father had not chosen us before the foundation of the world. There would be no beginning work in us if God the Son, in obedience to his Father, had not left heaven, become a man, lived a righteous life, died a substitutionary death, been vindicated by resurrection, and is now interceding for us in heaven on the basis of his finished work on earth. There would be no beginning work in us if on the basis of the work of God the Father had not sent the Spirit into the world to convince the world of sin and righteousness and judgment to come to make the dead soul live and undertake the miracle of the new birth. Paul would never forget how God had met with him on that day on the road to Damascus. And he was changed forever. Or how the Lord had opened Lydia's heart. Or humbled the jailer. Epaphroditus will have told Paul of many such stories. To be a Christian is to have our story of God beginning a work in us. Whether it's dramatical or not. And I think it's significant and interesting that In those two stories that we have in Acts about Philippian people who became Christians, we have on the one hand Lydia, who was a believer in God. On the Sabbath day, she's found by the riverside doing what believers in God did. But as Paul and Silas gently opened the word to her and to the others, the Lord opened her heart. There was something fresh, something new, something powerful that took place within her life. But what a contrast to the Philippian jailer. (laughs) And here's this man who's been hardened by years of being involved in that prison work. Who's got no background at all. But it's quite clear that God does a remarkable work in that person's life. So that he cries out, what must I do to be saved? And then Paul has to open up the word to explain to him. And so we have this spectrum of experience, but it is the truth that every Christian person, and I hope you could all say an amen to this in your own spirit, can say, God has begun a work in me. God began a work in me. I'm not what I once was. Something has changed. Something is different. And this is the work of God. I was blind, said that man in the Gospels, but now I see. You can see the signs of spiritual life. Others can see it. 
So Paul says, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. And this is God's work. And this is why Paul is confident in his joyful praying. Because God began this work. It's to his glory and praise. And because this is 100% God's work, it will surely succeed. If I was responsible for 0.0001% of my Christian beginning, there would be a most fatal flaw which would bring the whole affair crashing to the ground. But praise God, that's not the case. It's God who has begun his work in all his people. This is the bedrock reality for every Christian and it's 100% due to God. A good work has begun. It has a beginning but the work of God is much bigger than just a beginning. Just as a child is more than a baby and a man or a woman greater than a child. We look at the baby, we rightly say, what kind of person will this baby grow to be? We know that it will take time. It's not the work of a few days or weeks. It's the work of a lifetime. And so God's work in us is only begun at new birth. The seed is sown, a start is made, but it is just a start. So Paul would say to Epaphroditus, what about Lydia? How's she doing? And my good friend the jailer and his wife and children. And he'd be disappointed if all Epaphroditus could say was to remind Paul of their spiritual babyhood. No, he'd be keen to hear how they'd gone on, how they'd grown, how they'd testified, how they'd triumphed over temptation, how they'd proven God in their lives. Perhaps had been martyred for Christ. How was this good work of God working out in their lives? Where is Christ-likeness? Where is the fruit of the Spirit? Which is why Paul prays in chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. My prayer that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And I believe that Paul was so joyful because by and large, in taking the long-term view, there was repeated evidence of God's work in the lives of the Philippian Christians. There were blips and there were setbacks, but pastors have to take the long view. You can't be forever getting your children to stand against the height chart in their bedroom. But every so often you say, let's have a look. My word, you're growing. In the third uh, letter of John, verse 4, he says this rather lovely, lovely phrase. 
I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. <laughs> I did this little exercise in respect of you dear people in my heart and head over the last couple of weeks and I was encouraged in my spirit. I was encouraged in my spirit to, to sense what God has been doing in your hearts and some of the development of his work in your lives. And it's right and it's necessary and it's appropriate for us to be able to do that every so often. How are you growing? Where is the fruit? How is your service? God will complete what he's begun because what God starts he finishes unlike us this rather pathetic illustration came to my mind when I was thinking about this issue of how often we don't finish what we've begun I remember taking a bike to, to bits the full intention of putting it back together again. It seemed so easy at the time. You know, you just take the bits apart and they, they just all fall apart. Then you look at this mess on the ground and you've got a clue how to begin to put it together again. So that was about 35 years ago. <laughs> the parts are no longer... <laughs> The ambition was there, but it just drained away. Has God ever started anything he doesn't finish perfectly? That's a good question, isn't it? Can you think of anything that God has started that he doesn't finish perfectly? Not at all. So it is with every Christian. God is 100% on your case. He was in 2018 and he will be in 2019. He doesn't get bored or disillusioned with his workmanship in any of his children. He doesn't move on to something or someone more promising. He doesn't forget about you. I was having a hospital test this week and several times I was left to myself for a period of time um, and I just began to wonder have they forgotten about me? <laughs> Unlike our Heavenly Father from all eternity he knew not only you but what he had in mind for you and he is determined to bring that to his perfect completion by a 24-7 and personal attention to your particular situation. I want to speak a word here to those of us who are older. The Western world is obsessed with youth and older people can believe themselves to be surplus and a burden, especially as health fails and energy fades. The Church of Jesus Christ should never reflect that 
but it's easy for the thought to lodge. You are not surplus. You are not a burden to God. He's intensely at work in you in this stage of your life. Some of his finest craftsmanship awaits those in their 80s and 90s. I heard in recent weeks of a Christian lady in her 90s, she's 95, who is finishing her earthly course so well. Despite discouraging and upsetting circumstances, the peace of God is keeping her heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Oh, to end well like her. This is God's intention for all of us. Until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you notice that word there? Verse 6 there. Until the day of Christ Jesus. God has begun a good work in you, will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. You might think that God's work in us is completed on the day of our dying. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul seems to be comparing the possibility of either living or dying. And that certainly is a solemn step and a stage. But Paul looks beyond that point in this verse and speaks about God completing his work in us until the day of Jesus Christ. And this refers to that day when Jesus Christ will return to this earth, not in weakness and frailty as a baby, but as a king, a conqueror, and a judge. And on that day, and not before that day, the church of Jesus Christ will be complete. 100% complete. 100% perfected. All gathered in, none left straggling, all gathered in. The church of Christ will not be complete until then. Nor in a very real sense will we be complete without the completion of the church of Jesus Christ. And on that day and not before that day, every Christian will receive a new body like the glorious body of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is only one glorified body in heaven now, and it belongs to Jesus Christ. But on that day, all Christ's people receive their resurrection bodies. We shall not be complete until then. And on that day, and not before that day, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord as Paul reminds the Philippians in chapter 2. The reign and rule of Jesus Christ is not manifestly, openly declared until that day when he will make all things new and usher in a new heaven and a new earth in which dwell righteousness. And if God has begun his work in you, then he will complete it and you'll be found on that day with great joy clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ expressing the fullness of the perfection of God's work 
which he intends for all of his children. So rejoice. Because God has a wonderful way of overwhelming, turning aside the dark sinfulness of our lives, the weakness and frailty of our habits, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I'd have loved to have eavesdropped on Paul's joyful prayers for the Philippians. How would he have prayed for the church of Jesus Christ at Calvary? I think he would have prayed with equal joy. Equal joy. And we too should pray for one another with such joy. Knowing that he has begun a good work in us will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Amen. We've got two great songs to sing.